This is a Reconstruction radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is The Great Tribulation by David Chilton. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1987 by Dominion Press. Chapter 11 It is finished. The symbolic targets of the first four chalices were the elements of the physical creation, land, sea, waters, and the sun. With the last three chalices, the consequences of the angelic attack are more political in nature. The disruption of the beast's kingdom, the war of the great day of God, and the fall of Babylon. The fifth chalice. Although most of the judgments throughout Revelation are aimed specifically at apostate Israel, the heathen who join Israel against the church come under condemnation as well. Indeed, the great tribulation itself would prove to be the hour of testing that hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the land. Chapter 3, verse 10. The fifth angel, Revelation 16, 10-11, therefore pours out his chalice upon the throne of the beast. And even as the sun's heat is scorching those who worship the beast, the lights are turned out on his kingdom, and it becomes darkened, which is, as we saw in our study of Matthew 24, a standard biblical symbol for political turmoil and the fall of rulers. Isaiah 13, 9-10, Amos 8, 9 Ezekiel 32, 7-8 The primary significance of this plague is still the judgment on Israel. For, in terms of the message of Revelation, she was the throne and kingdom of the beast. Moreover, as we shall see, the people who suffer from the fifth chalice are identified as suffering as well from the first chalice, which was poured out upon the land, upon the Israelite worshippers of the beast. Revelation 16, 2 it is also likely, however, that this judgment partially corresponds to the wars, revolutions, riots, and worldwide convulsions that racked the empire after Nero committed suicide in June 68. The great 19th century scholar F.W. Farrar wrote in this connection of the horrors inflicted upon Rome and Romans in the civil wars by provincial governors already symbolized as the horns of the wild beast, and here characterized as kings yet kingdomless. Such were Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. Vespasian and Mucianus deliberately planned to starve the Roman populace, and in the fierce struggle of the Vitellians against Sabinus and Domitian, and the massacre which followed, there occurred the event which sounded so potentiously in the ears of every Roman, the burning to the ground of the temple of the Capitoline Jupiter on December 19th, A.D. 69. It was not the least of the signs of the times that the space of one year saw wrapped in flames the two most hallowed shrines of the ancient world, the Temple of Jerusalem and the Temple of the Great Latin God. The Early Days of Christianity, pages 555. One passage from Tacitus the Roman historian, provides some idea of the chaotic conditions in the capital city. 
Close by the fighting stood the people of Rome like the audience at a show, cheering and clapping this side or that in turns as if this were a mock battle in the arena. Whenever one side gave way, men would hide in shops or take refuge in some great house. They were then dragged out and killed at the instance of the mob, who gained most of the loot, for the soldiers were bent on bloodshed and massacre, and the booty fell to the crowd. The whole city presented a frightful caricature of its normal self, fighting and casualties at one point, baths and restaurants at another, here the spilling of blood and the litter of dead bodies, close by prostitutes and their like, all the vice associated with a life of idleness and pleasure, all the dreadful deeds typical of a pitiless sack. These were so intimately linked that an observer would have thought Rome in the grip of a simultaneous orgy of violence and dissipation. There had indeed been times in the past when armies had fought inside the city, twice when Lucius Suya gained control, and once under Sina. No less cruelty had been displayed then, but now there was a brutish indifference, and not even a momentary interruption in the pursuit of pleasure, as if, as if this were one more entertainment in the festive season. They gloated over horrors and profited by them, careless which side won and glorying in the calamities of the state. The Histories 3.83 Again, St. John draws attention to the impenitence of the apostates. Their response to God's judgment is only greater rebellion. Yet their rebellion is becoming increasingly impotent. They nod their tongues because of pain, and they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent, so as to give him glory. A distinguishing mark of the chalice plagues is that they come all at once, with no breathing space between them. The plagues are bad enough one at a time, as in the judgments on Egypt, but these people are still gnawing their tongues and blaspheming God on account of their sores, the sores that came upon them when the first chalice was poured out. The judgments are being poured out so quickly that each successive plague finds the people still suffering from all those that preceded it. And because their character has not been transformed, they do not repent. The notion that great suffering produces godliness is a myth. Only the grace of God can turn the wicked from rebellion. But Israel has resisted the spirit to its own destruction. The Sixth Chalice Corresponding to the Sixth Trumpet, Revelation 9, 13-21, the Sixth Chalice is poured out upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings from the rising of the sun. Revelation 16.12 As we saw earlier, the Euphrates was Israel's northern frontier, from which invading armies would come to ravage and oppress the covenant people. The image of the drawing of the Euphrates for a conquering army is taken, in part, from a stratagem of Cyrus the Persian, who conquered Babylon by temporarily turning the Euphrates out of its course, enabling his army to march up the riverbed into the city, taking it by surprise. The more basic idea, of course, is the drying up of the Red Sea, Exodus 14, 21-22, and the Jordan River, Joshua 3, 9-17, and 4, 22-24, for the victorious people of God. Again, there is the underlying note of tragic irony. Israel has become the new Babylon, an enemy of God 
that must now be conquered by a new Cyrus. As the true covenant people are miraculously delivered and brought into their inheritance, the coming of the armies from the Euphrates, of course, represents the final siege of Jerusalem by the armies of Titus. And it is certainly more than coincidental that thousands of these very troops actually did come from the Euphrates. In verses 13 and 14 of Revelation 16, St. John records the appearance of three unclean spirits proceeding out of the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The land beast, or leadership of Israel, spoken of in Revelation 13.11 and 19.20. A connection with the second Egyptian plague is established here, for the multitude of frogs that infested Egypt came from the river, Exodus 8.1-7. St. John has combined these images in these verses. First, an invasion from a river, verse 12. Second, a plague of frogs. In the Old Covenant dietary laws, frogs are unclean, Leviticus 11, 9 through 12, and 41 and 47. Third, these frogs are really spirits of demons, performing signs in order to deceive them, mankind. There is a multiple emphasis on the dragon, imitated by his cohorts, throwing things from his mouth, Revelation 12, 15 and 16, 13, 5 and 6. Contrast, 1, 16, 11, 5, 19, 15 and 21. And the triple repetition of mouth here serves also as another point of contact with the sixth trumpet, chapter 9, 17 through 19. These unclean spirits from the devil, the Roman government, and the leaders of Israel go out to the kings of the whole world, Psalm 2 to gather them together for the war of that great day of God. By their false prophecy and miraculous works, they incite the armies of the world to join together in war against God. What they do not realize is that the battle is the Lord's, and that the armies are being brought to fulfill God's purposes, not their own. It is He who prepares the way for them, even drying up the Euphrates for their passage. Micah, the prophet, gave a much similar message to the evil king Ahab of Israel, explaining why Ahab would be killed in battle against the Arameans. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said unto him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. 1 Kings 22, 19-22 This is echoed in St. Paul's prophecy to the Thessalonians. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason... God will send upon them a work of error, so that they might believe the lie, in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, 
but took pleasure in wickedness. Second Thessalonians 2, 7-12 Ultimately, the work of error performed by these lying spirits is sent by God in order to bring about the destruction of his enemies in the war of that great day of God. A biblical term for a day of judgment, of calamity for the wicked. Isaiah 13, 6 and 9, Joel 2, 1 through 2, 11 and 31, Amos 5, 18 through 20, Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. Specifically, this is to be the day of Israel's condemnation and execution, the day, as Jesus foretold in his parable, when the king would send his armies to destroy the murderers and set their city on fire, Matthew 22, 7. St. John underscores this point again by referring to the Lord as God the Almighty, the Greek translation of the Hebrew expression, God of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven and earth, chapter 1, verse 8. The armies coming to bring about Israel's destruction, regardless of their motivation, are God's armies, sent by Him, even through lying spirits if necessary, to bring about His purposes, for His glory, the evil frog demons performed their false wonders and works of error because God's angel poured out his chalice of wrath. The narrative is suddenly interrupted by Christ's statement in verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. This is the central theme of the book of Revelation, summarizing Christ's warnings to the churches in the seven letters, Revelation 2, 5, 16, and 25, Chapter 3, 3 and 11. The coming of the Roman armies will be, in reality, Christ's coming in terrible wrath against his enemies, those who have betrayed him and slain his witnesses. The specific wording and imagery seem to be based on the letter to the church in Sardis. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Revelation 3, 3. Matthew 24, 42 through 44. Luke 12, 35 through 40. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11 The same letter to Sardis also says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. Revelation 3 and 2, 4-5 Similarly, the text of the sixth chalice continues. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. Revelation 3.18 In the letter to Laodicea, I advise you to buy from me white garments, that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. The symbolism of this is based on the punishment for those temple guards who fell asleep while on duty. Their clothes were confiscated and burned. Christ is rebuking the guardians of Israel for their spiritual sloth, warning that they are about to be cast out of office when he comes in judgment. They fell, they fell asleep, and now it is too late. The temple is going to be attacked and destroyed. Judgment and destruction are approaching rapidly. There is no time left to waste, and the churches must be awake and on the alert. So John picks up the story again in verse 16. The demons gather the kings of earth together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Literally, this is called Har-Mageddon, meaning Mount Megiddo. A problem for literalists arise here. For Megiddo is a city on a plain, not a mountain. 
there never was or will be a literal battle of Armageddon, for there is no such place. The mountain nearest to the place plain of Megiddo is Mount Carmel, and this is presumably what St. John had in mind. Why didn't he simply say Mount Carmel? Probably because he wanted to bring both ideas together, Carmel because of its association with the defeat of Jezebel's false prophets, and Megiddo because it was the scene of several important military engagements in biblical history. Megiddo is listed among the conquests of Joshua, Joshua 12, 21. And it is especially important as the place where Deborah defeated the kings of Canaan, Judges 5, 19. King Ahaziah of Judah, the evil grandson of King Ahab of Israel, died at Megiddo, 2 Kings 9, 27. Perhaps the most significant event that took place there, in terms of St. John's imagery, was a confrontation between Judah's King Josiah and the Egyptian pharaoh, Necho. In deliberate disobedience to the word of God, Josiah faced Necho in battle at Megiddo and was mortally wounded, 2 Chronicles 35, 20-25. Following Josiah's death, Judah's downward spiral into apostasy, destruction, and bondage was swift and irrevocable, 2 Chronicles 36. The Jews mourned for Josiah's death, even down through the time of Ezra, See 2 Chronicles 35.25. And the prophet Zechariah uses this as an image of Israel's mourning for the Messiah. After promising to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, Zechariah 12.9, God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit on grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo, and the land will mourn every family by itself. Zechariah 12, 10 and 11. This is then followed by God's declaration that he will remove from Israel the idols, the false prophets, and the evil spirits. Zechariah 13, and that he will bring hostile armies to besiege Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, Megiddo, thus was for St. John a symbol of defeat and desolation, a Waterloo, signifying the defeat of those who set themselves against God, who obey false prophets instead of the true. The seventh chalice. Finally, the seventh angel pours out his chalice upon the air in order to produce the lightning and thunder, verse 18, and hail, verse 21. Again, a voice comes from the temple of heaven, from the throne, signifying God's control and approval. St. John has already announced that these seven chalice plagues were to be the last because in them the wrath of God is finished, Revelation 15:1. With the seventh chalice, therefore, the voice proclaims, It is done. John 19.30, Revelation 21.6 Again, St. John records this phenomena associated with the day of the Lord and the covenant-making activity of the glory cloud, flashes of lightnings, peals of thunder, voices, and a great earthquake, Revelation 16.18 Seven times in Revelation, St. John mentions an earthquake, Verse 
6, 12, 8, 5, 11, 13, twice, 11, 19, 16, 18, twice. Emphasizing its covenantal dimensions, Christ came to bring the definitive earthquake, the great cosmic earthquake of the new covenant, one such as there had not been since the men came to be upon the land, so mighty an earthquake and so great. Matthew twenty four twenty one, Exodus nine eighteen, and twenty four, Daniel twelve one, Joel two one and two. This was also the message of the writer to the Hebrews, comparing the covenant made at Sinai with the coming of the new covenant, which would be established at the destruction of the temple, and the complete passing of the old covenant. He announced that the heavens and earth, of the mosaic economy, were passing away having been replaced by Christ's eternal kingdom. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Haggai 2.6 and this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things that can be shaken, as of created things, in order, that, in order that those things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews twelve twenty five 25-29 St. John has made it clear that the great city is the old Jerusalem where the Lord was crucified, Revelation 11.8 and 14.8. Originally intended to be the light of the world, a city set on a hill, she is now an apostate murderess condemned to perish. Under the judgment of the seventh chalice, she is to be split into three parts, Revelation 16.19. This imagery is drawn from the fifth chapter of Ezekiel, in which God instructs the prophet to stage a drama, portraying the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Ezekiel was to shave his head with a sharp sword and then carefully divide the hair into three parts. One-third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city. Then you shall take one-third and strike it with a sword all around the city, and one-third you shall scatter to the wind and I will unsheathe a sword behind them. Take also a few in number from them, and bind them in the edges of your robes. And take again some of them, and throw them into the fire, and burn them in the fire. From it a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations, with lands around her. But she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations, and against my statutes, more than the lands that surround her, for they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations that surround you, and have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations that surround you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you. And I will execute judgments against you in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, 
and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you, and sons will eat their fathers. For I will execute judgments on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. So as I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw, and my eyes shall have no pity, and I will not spare. One third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword around you. And one third I will scatter to every wind, and I will unsheathe a sword behind them. Ezekiel 5, 1 through 12. While St. John's image of the city's division into three parts is clearly taken from Ezekiel, the specific reference may be the division of, de- of besieged Jerusalem into three factions, each struggling fiercely and violently for dominance. Scholars have often observed that this factionalism proved to be the downfall of the city. She was betrayed and destroyed through her divisions. One important indication that the great city is Jerusalem is the fact that in this verse, St. John distinguishes her from the cities of the Gentiles, which fell with her. Jerusalem, we must remember, was the capital city of the kingdom of priests, the place of the temple, Within her walls, sacrifices and prayers were offered up for all nations. The old covenant system was a world order, the foundation on which the whole world was organized and maintained in stability. She covenantally represented all the nations of the world, and in her fall they collapsed. The new organization of the world is based on the new Jerusalem, built on the rock and multi-centralized throughout the world. Thus Babylon the Great, Revelation 14.8, was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. In this judgment, every false refuge disappears. The mountains and rocks no longer can hide the wicked from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, Revelation 6.16. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found, Revelation 16.20. We have already noticed that Revelation and the prophecy of Ezekiel share some common themes. Here again there is a parallel. Ezekiel declared that Jerusalem's falls, prophets, would bring on her destruction by a violent hailstorm. Ezekiel 13, 1-16 St. John foretells the same fate. And huge hailstones about the weight of a talent, 100 pounds, came down from heaven upon men and the men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. Because its plague is extremely severe, Revelation 16.21. As with the other plagues, the imagery is borrowed from the plagues that Moses brought upon Egypt. In this case, the seventh plague, Exodus 9.18-26. The plague of hailstones also calls up associations with the large stones from heaven that God threw down upon the Canaanites when the land was being conquered under Joshua, Joshua 10, 11. As Deborah sang, the very stars of heaven make war against the enemies of God, Judges 5, 20. A specific historical referent of this hailstorm may have been recorded by Josephus in his strange account of the huge stone missiles thrown by the Roman catapults into the city. The stone missiles weighed a talent and traveled two furlongs or more, and their impact not only on those who were hit first, 
but also on those behind them, was enormous. At first the Jews kept watch for the stone, for it was white, and its approach was intimated to the eye by its shining surface as well as to the ear by its whizzing sound. Watchmen posted on the towers gave the warnings whenever the engine was fired and the stone came hurtling toward them, shouting in their native tongue, The sun is coming! Those in the line of fire made way a fell and prone, a precaution that resulted in the stones passing harmlessly through and falling in the rear. To frustrate this, it occurred to the Romans to blacken the stones so that they could not be seen so easily beforehand. Then they hit their target and destroyed many with a single shot. The Jewish roar. Five, six, three. After considering various theories about the meaning of this phrase, commentator J. Stuart Russell observed, It could not be well known to the Jews that the great hope and faith of the Christians was the speedy coming of the sun. It was about this very time, according to Hegesippus, that St. James, the brother of our Lord, publicly testified in the temple that the Son of Man was about to come in the clouds of heaven, and then sealed his testimony with his blood. It seems highly probable that the Jews, in their defiant and desperate blasphemy, when they saw the white mass hurtling through the air, raised the ribald cry, The sun is coming, in mockery of the Christian hope of the parousa to which they might trace a ludicrous resemblance in the strange appearance of the missile. The Parousa, page 482. Again, the men blasphemed God. Their consistent reaction throughout the pouring out of the chalices, revealing not only their wickedness, but their downright stupidity. When hundred-pound stones are falling from heaven, it is surely the wrong time to commit blasphemy. But God has abandoned these men to their own self-destruction. Their vicious, hateful rebellion consumes them to such a degree that they can depart into eternity with curses on their lips. The chalices containing the last of the plagues have been poured out, but the end is not yet. The rest of St. John's prophecy closes in on the destruction of the great harlot city of Jerusalem and her allies, and concludes with the revelation of the glorious bride of Christ, the true holy city, New Jerusalem. Revelation 17-22 through 22 may therefore be considered a continuation of the seventh chalice, or an exposition of its meaning. In any case, the events are clearly governed by the angels of the chalices, see 17.1 and 21.9. In his fascinating study of the early days of Christianity, page 557, F. W. Farrar draws this conclusion about the book of Revelation. The whole book from beginning to end, teaches the great truths. Christ shall triumph. Christ's enemies shall be overcome. They who hate him shall be destroyed. They who love him shall be blessed unspeakably. The doom alike of Jew and of Gentile is already imminent. On Judea and Jerusalem, on Rome and her empire, on Nero and his adorers, the judgment shall fall. Sword and fire and famine and pestilence and storm and earthquake, and social agony and political terror are nothing but the woes which are ushering in the Messiah messianic reign. Old things are rapidly passing away. The light upon the visage of the old dispensation is vanishing and fading into dimness. But the face of him who is as the sun 
is already dawning through the East. The new and final covenant is instantly to be established amid terrible judgments, and it is to be so established as to render impossible the continuance of the old. Maranatha, the Lord is at hand. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.